0: once again we welcome you back to moving forward with young voices hey we're happy to welcome uh, natalie voigt back to the program Um, natalie it hasn't been that long since we had you on but some folks are going to be meeting you for the first time so take a moment tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: yeah so my name is natalie i'm a freelance contributor writing contributor and I went to UF, to the University of Florida. I studied political science and history. I also got a minor in philosophy. Not that that's super important, Um, but I'm based in Switzerland right now and I'm excited to be a part of the Young Voices program.
0: Well, I'm looking at an article that you had published in counterpunch.org and it's interesting because I just was having a conversation with some folks the other day about um, there's there's a lack of confidence in the Supreme Court. Some people are really having um, doubts. Can we trust the court? Is it time you know that that uh, that maybe we we create a code of conduct for the court? And your article addresses this that there are concerns about the ethics of members of the Supreme Court. Help set the stage for us. Where do those concerns come from? Is it just Clarence Thomas and his relationships with his friends and you know some undisclosed trips and things? Like that, or does it go deeper?
1: It goes deeper. So, Justice Samuel Alito was also implicated in some ethics scandals. And then just now, it was there just now they released a ProPublica published some uh another uh, update to the Clarence Thomas case. I'm pulling it out right now. And they say he has attended at least two Koch donor donor summits. So the Koch brothers, the conservative um, brothers who donated billions of dollars to conservative co- causes. And just four days ago, literally September 22nd, they're saying Thomas had met, he attended two of those summits. And they're, you know, the Koch brothers have brought multiple cases before the Supreme Court. And then also they implicated... Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor in um for selling her books kind of like um uh, using her position in the Supreme Court to, to sell her own books and Justice Alito. So it's not just Thomas. there seems to be a history of ethics violations in the Supreme Court.
0: Was that a concern historically? I'm just I'm curious, you know, can we go back you know to, to the Supreme Court from the country's founding and, and find that there were similar concerns? Is this more of a recent uh, development?
1: I believe it's more of a recent development I would have to check the the full history of uh, all the Supreme Court justices but um there would have been more news about it like if it had been going on in the past so it seems to be more of a recent development due to the lack of ethics rules in the Supreme Court the lack of a formal and constitutional uh, requirement for them to 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 have ethics rules and in a sense they seem to be above the law because there's no legal requirement for them to to have an ethics committee or to have an oversight panel. They seem to be exempt from the law.
0: Natalie, that's something you actually point out in your article. Um, the Supreme Court's the only court in the country that doesn't have an official code of conduct. And it makes me wonder, why didn't the founders include that? I, I mean, I'm not asking the Please tell me why, but that's curious, isn't it? Because other courts, it seems like that's the norm, but for the Supreme Court... You know, given its its stature, it seems like that would have been uh, kind of a necessary thing.
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I can't go back, and I I wish I could speak to the founders today. But I'm thinking it might be because they wanted the Supreme Court to be completely isolated from politics, from uh, yeah, anything to do with Congress and all these political. Um, how do I say it?
0: Like the outside influences.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in this sense, they wanted them to be completely independent. Um, So even though it seems like that because they put so many checks uh, and balances on other on other uh, on the other branches, it seems like they would have done this here. But at the same time, I can understand maybe why they would have done that really to maintain that independence from the political how do you call it like you said the political influences and there of the
0: are plenty day. there are plenty of those influences at work in in Washington DC
2: mm-hmm. so
0: what is the likely solution um what to, what do you see as as a likely path forward to address those concerns
1: yeah i think they should establish a an independent oversight panel um i think that would be the best thing um, that way they have a third party observing whether they maintain impartiality, institutional impartiality and whether they're they can hold the, each other accountable for ethics violations. So even though that's not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, I think it um, it it uh, in terms of the spirit of the law and what I think the founders would have wanted would obviously be to have to hold them accountable as well. Um, so I think definitely an oversight panel is needed here.
0: And, and if you wouldn't mind, just kind of walk me through, where would they draw the members of that oversight panel? I have this concern is this is the reason I'm asking. Um, it seems like politics is so ubiquitous. It's just everywhere. Um, where are they going to find people that, you know, aren't politicized in one way or another? I'm sure it can be done. I'm just not sure where to look.
1: Yeah, I think... I mean, there are maybe I would say retired federal justices from other courts, from the lower courts. I think that would be a good uh, source to draw from because they have the experience and they have no incentive to to towards impartiality. They have, I mean, they, they're retired already. So, uh, to me, I think the best case, the best uh, people they could draw from would be retired federal justices because they know the law, they have. I mean, even they're actually so they are subject to all the rules that the Supreme Court claims to adhere to. Uh, They are subject to all the judicial conference rules, so they know exactly what they can, what they're legally allowed to do and not do. So I think that would be the best uh, solution here.
0: So I have to ask this, too, as far as. A system like this is put in place, you know, now um, they can be held accountable. What does that accountability look like? I mean, could they be impeached from the Supreme Court or removed from the court if they violate those, those ethical rules?
1: I think, yes, that that should be the case. So I think the same system accountability would look like in this case, whatever accountability looks like for federal justices where the laws do apply to them and they can be impeached or removed from the court. So I think that's fair that they they are subject to the same accountability that other federal justices in the country are.
0: I agree with you that
1: Thomas I there would have to be I can't say prematurely. It's very suspect considering the allegations, but there there should be an ind- there. Ideally, there would be an independent oversight panel now to let uh, to analyze everything in detail and determine whether he should be removed or impeached from the court.
0: I agree with you that uh, there should be transparency and there should be accountability. I do have the concern, just and again, this is based on the political atmosphere in Washington, D.C., that uh, any kind of accountability or oversight committee or, or any suspicion of ethics violations would, would be, um, could be abused. And, and I don't know, if, is that something you'd like to address? Uh, how do we keep people from from building mountains out of molehills, you know, just to try to get, well, we don't like that justice or we wanna get a more um, progressive justice on the court. So let's see if we can get rid of this one. It just seems like it it, it could open the door to spurious claims.
1: Right. Um, I think if there was a way to ensure that the the justices that are chosen have a history, of nonpartisanship, that they don't that they aren't actively involved in any politics. I think that would be one way. I'm also thinking there could be a second uh committee to oversee, but I don't know if that gets too complicated. But I would also say if the laws are, or maybe if we keep those federal justices anonymous and within their work or within their evaluation of the justices. I would like to say that they should not be able to speak to the press like they should maintain anonymity. And that should be a rule that they aren't allowed to to reveal who they are and to speak to the press about it, because that would definitely uh, um, uh, affect impartiality.
0: OK, one more question. We've got about one minute left. And and that question is, uh, is, is part of this due to just the whole political atmosphere in Washington? It seems like everything is much more intense, much more polarized and volatile than it was. I, I, I'm just wondering, Natalie, in your opinion, was the Supreme Court ever supposed to be a, a lightning rod of sorts, you know, for, for the kind of intrigue that we see today?
1: Uh, could I just ask, what do you mean as part of this too? Um, yeah, I, I,
0: to the- I, I'm just curious if uh, I, I'm wondering if the Supreme Court uh, is is affected by political atmosphere outside of just its own existence. I mean, it, it seems like right. it seems like everything has become more politicized, and I don't know that. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if if we if we put too much emphasis on the court. Everything hangs on who's on the court and, and maybe that's even, you know, beyond what it should be. Sorry, that was a really roundabout question, but I will tell you I no, really no. I truly yeah, appreciate I, think- uh, I appreciate your article we're, we're up against the clock here for people who mm-hmm. want to follow your writing Natalie where can mm-hmm. they find you and where can they find you on social media
1: yeah they can find me on uh, I write regularly for C3 solutions um, so my latest article just got published today so they can find me at c3newsmag.com and yeah
0: thank you so much Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices, and we are happy to welcome Noah Gould back to the program. Noah is a Young Voices contributor and also the student programs manager at the Acton Institute. There we go. Noah, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Brian. So uh, I'm sure I've left a few things off here. Take a moment. Tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do.
2: Yeah, so I work for the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, and I run our student programs as well as our alumni outreach. And part of my role, I get to write on a variety of topics. I write on economics, um, business culture, the arts, and I really love connecting different ideas and going deeper kind of behind uh, the, the deeper ideas behind some art and culture.
0: And I'm looking at an article that you wrote for RealClearBooks.com about uh, Christopher Nolan, the Hollywood director's uh, visual power being unleashed in the movie Oppenheimer, and I'm sorry to say I have not yet seen this movie. Uh, It sounds like you have though, so first of all, give us your impressions of the movie Oppenheimer. I understand it's a fairly lengthy film, but uh, what was your takeaway?
2: Yes, if you go see it, go in knowing that you're in for a three-hour uh, film, but it's a it's a real treat. So I'm I wouldn't count myself as kind of a Nolan uh, bro or a Nolan fanboy, but uh, I love this film for a few reasons. Um, it follows Robert uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, during his career and as they're exploring the new physics, so exploring the power behind the atom, and he leads the Manhattan Project. So during World War II it's this race to see who can uh, create the atomic bomb first will it be Germany and the Nazis or will it be the US and so uh, Oppenheimer is uh, the force bringing together all these different scientists to the table uh, to explore uh, what can they do together and There's a lot of nuance to this film. Sometimes a Nolan film can kind of get caught up in just being an action flick. It often has a central kind of gimmick or twist that is fun, but it's just that. It's just a great action movie. You can watch it once and enjoy it, but there's not a lot below the surface. I really thought this uh, movie got out of that box and really got into the main character's motivations, some deeper human lessons, and so that really was a win here.
0: Interesting. Now, you mentioned a couple of films of his that I have seen, uh, The Prestige and also um, Inception. And so, yeah, my expectations for Christopher Nolan are set pretty high based on films like that. Um, he's, he's a pretty respected director, but talk to me about, uh, about what he succeeded in, in doing here that took this film beyond just a, a mere you know action. I mean, a nuclear blast, that's a pretty big deal, but um, what's the deeper story that he managed to tap into?
2: Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting sleight of hand here, right? This is his first biopic, I guess, if you, if you don't count Batman, um, and uh, he really explores kind of the character of Oppenheimer. You might think it's mainly about going to be about the explosion, the bomb, and there are some beautiful visuals here, uh, but the explosion actually happens kind of halfway through the film. So it's almost an anti-climax in the middle of the film. And then, you really kind of inside Oppenheimer's mind as he explores uh, the atom. And then that allows us to kind of reflect on human nature and how it inter- interacts with technology. So there's a lot of lessons about hubris here. So Oppenheimer really thinks that he can ultimately control um, the destiny of wh- what's going to happen with this bomb, right? He Because he is this central figure bringing together scientists, he's respected by generals. He's respected by senators everyone kind of looks to him uh, as uh, kind of this guy who's going to tell them what's in the future. Are we going to make this happen? And he's going to, he's going to pull everything together. Um, But as soon as uh, he successfully creates the bomb and there's this beautiful scene where he's in the desert um, in Los Alamos uh, producing the bomb and the two bombs get loaded up on these trucks and the, the trucks drive out of the compound you know, on their way to uh, the control of the army, and then they're going to go to Japan and you kind of see him deflate. He he was this kind of powerful man who had you know, the control of the bomb and now it's out of his hands and he goes to the general and asks him, OK, you know, when what when are these going to be dropped next? And the general kind of says, we'll let you know when we let you know. Wow. And so all of a sudden, He doesn't have power and he finds out on the radio with the rest uh, of the U.S. So I think that allows us not just for Oppenheimer's hubris, but to kind of reflect on this is really a universal human condition here of thinking that we have ultimate control.
0: I love it. Okay, now now you've got me thinking I I need to see this sooner than later. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, how showing the humanity of people like Oppenheimer helps us better understand the, the historical events. I know Hollywood has a tendency to punch things up, you know, um, Pearl Harbor, you know, from 20 some years ago was, was a really good example. I mean, they were just about this much short of having, you know, uh, FDR fist fighting Tojo on the deck of the Arizona. Yes, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, it was just, but, but it sounds like this movie strove for historical accuracy, but at the same time really tried to bring some humanity to real people that we've heard about, read about, but may not have have understood so well.
2: Yeah, I think it gets a lot of the historical facts right. One thing that it probably uh, changes slightly is it really shows Oppenheimer having a huge amount of angst before the bomb is dropped about whether to drop the bomb and whether whether they should do it. Is this the right move? And What what Nolan probably did is just combined all the different opinions of a lot of different scientists in one man. Oppenheimer, in the historical record, seems to have more angst after the bomb is dropped and more regret afterwards where he kind of uh, campaigns against um, nuclear proliferation. So that's maybe one, one thing we could quibble with. but. As far as the historical narrative, we see how, I think there's some balance to that decision that they had to make to, to drop the bomb. We see, uh, you know, Oppenheimer basically says, well, if we don't do it, the Nazis will, and so there really isn't a choice here. So so that is what a lot of people during that time thought. But then I think it also uh, grapples with the, the fact of the bomb dropping and what that means for us as humans in a, a real way, a, a powerful way. And it uses um, the visual medium to do that. One way that it balances the historical facts versus kind of the subjective experience of Oppenheimer, and this is a classic kind of uh, Nolan trick, is um, he uses color, and whenever the the movie's in color, that is kind of Oppenheimer's subjective experience, um, thinking about the uh, atomic power, thinking about the bomb uh, before and afterwards. Then whenever the movie is in black and white, that is more of a historical narrative, um, you know, Senate hearings and things like that, of things that happen. So he kind of balances these two narratives, I think in a very clever way.
0: Something you pointed out that I found really insightful was, um, you know, Oppenheimer, Definitely wants the credit for the scientific advances, but he doesn't really want the responsibility for where those scientific advances led. And, and you make the case that this is a great chance, not just for you know the geniuses among us, but all of us to, to contemplate the, the concept of hubris and, and where we might find it in our own lives.
2: Exactly. I think there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that really sums this up well. Um, he says in the abolition of man that uh, man's power over nature uh, turns out really to be a power exercised by some men over other men. Uh, and so this is back to this idea of we can reflect on we each think we kind of have ultimate control, but these technologies do have a way of, of having an unexpected arc over their life.
0: And, and there are parallels even in our time, as you point out, you know, um, in the 1940s, you know, the, the mysteries of the atom were, were unlocked. Did we have, you know, technology through social media and so forth, but it's a double edged sword. So we probably should proceed with caution. And um, I, I love that you bring the human nature aspect into this, where this isn't just about people on a movie screen. This, this, there's something we could each learn about ourselves in the process.
2: Yes, exactly, technology can change some things and it can make our lives better, You know, change our quality of life in, in some good ways. But we, I think we do need to remember that human nature, some of these fundamentals just will not change depending on the whims of this technology or that technology.
0: All right, once again, we are talking with Noah Gould. He is a Young Voices contributor, as well as the alumni and student programs manager at the Acton Institute. Um, Noah, for folks who wanna follow you, uh, where can they find you on social media? Where can they follow your writing? Yeah, so I have a a
2: substack that I'm working on setting up so you can subscribe to that at gouldstandard.substack.com, or you can find a lot of my writing on acting.org.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome uh, Jillian Jacobson, Actually, I, do you mind if I call you Jill? Is Jill okay?
3: <laughs> I go by Jill. In fact, I think my mother's the only one that calls me Jillian. So either I'm, or, it's fine.
0: This is this is what I get for uh, looking at, at the Zoom screen and not uh, not your your byline. Um, Jill is joining us as a Young Voices contributor. And Jill, I'm going to ask you take just a moment for the sake of listeners who are, are meeting you for the very first time. Um, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do.
3: Definitely. Thanks for having me back, Brian. I am a third-year law student at Boston College Law School and a contributor here at Young Voices, and I will be a clerk on the Southern District of Florida next year after I graduate.
0: Very nice. Well, I'm looking at an article that you have written that's been published in Newsweek about theft by another name. It's time to fight back against civil asset forfeiture. Um, This is a topic that I think is near and dear to my heart, and I hope more people get informed on it. When we talk about uh, theft by any other name, I don't, think you're being, I don't think you're using hyperbole to describe this. Talk to us about civil asset forfeiture and, and why, why is it accurate in many cases to refer to it as theft?
3: Sure, so very simply, civil asset forfeiture is a law enforcement tool where officers can seize property that they merely suspect to be involved in the commission of a crime, even if it's not used in the commission of a crime by the owner. So importantly, that means that they don't have to charge you with a crime and much less do they have to convict you with a crime. So what oftentimes happens is that they seize property that they suspect was involved in a crime, uh, but then criminal proceedings never follow. So people are innocent and their property is in custody of law enforcement and they have to take it upon themselves to initiate proceedings to regain it.
0: So due process, at least for the person, is is not even applied, but their money or sometimes you mentioned other valuables uh, um, remains in police custody. And then they have to go to court. They have to hire attorneys. They have to pay to to fight the the process or to, to initiate the process to get it back. Is that right?
3: yeah so sort of strangely civil forfeiture actions are actually between the government and the property itself which leads Mm -hmm. to really strange case names like united states v red toyota camry or us v five thousand dollars of united states currency so they're not actually against the owner which means that all of the bill of rights and due process protections that we normally afford to the criminally accused they are not applicable in civil asset forfeiture actions, which means the owner has to pay for an attorney out of pocket um, and lots of other you know, protections that we normally envision people are entitled to under our constitution.
0: You give the example of a New York resident, uh, Crystal Starling, as an example of what this looks like, would you mind recounting her story?
3: Certainly. So briefly, Crystal Starling owns a hot dog stand in Rochester, New York, and she was saving up to turn it into a full-fledged food truck when cops seized her life savings under civil forfeiture. The brief backstory is that her then-boyfriend was being investigated for drug crimes, which he was later acquitted on, but they searched her apartment in connection with that, and they seized her money thinking that perhaps it had been involved with his criminal activity, which it hadn't. But she initiated an action to get her life savings back, as one would, and a U.S. attorney told her that she couldn't start the proceeding until her boyfriend's criminal case had been acquitted or, you know, was over one way or another. So she waits around, and he's finally acquitted, and she reaches back out to the government, and she says, you know, I'm ready. This is my time. I've been waiting for my life savings, and I'm ready to get it back since I haven't done anything wrong. And- They say, well, I'm not sure who told you that, but the filing deadline is over. Your opportunity to have reclaimed your property has long passed. And Crystal Starling did not have an attorney. She did not have anyone else helping her. And she relied on, you know, a member of the Justice Department that told her that she needed to wait. So long story short, the Institute for Justice stepped in and helped her appeal. And now she has another shot to get that property back.
0: I'm sorry, my blood pressure just uh, jumped a few points there in here. This is happening, though, on a much broader scale. So, I mean, people could say, well, that sounds like an isolated incident, but it's really not. When we talk about civil forfeiture, I mean, give me give me a rough figure. How many billions of dollars in money and assets are, are taken from people like this?
3: Yeah, so since 2000, the government has seized Oh, more than $68.8 billion mm-hmm. from Americans through civil forfeiture. And in Crystal Starling State alone in New York, they, law enforcement's generated $20 billion since 2000 from civil forfeiture. So this is by no means an isolated instance. It is somewhat unique in that this is a large amount of money. Most times law enforcement seizes small amounts of cash, or a phone or things of that nature which insidiously enough make it it's it's a disincentive to go fight it in court because hiring an attorney costs more than the property's worth but this is a widespread issue irrespective of the amount of money that's often seized
0: wow and and just just so we can can make this clear people who find themselves you know on the receiving end of this. Don't always have to be, you know, drug mules, you know, running money for the cartels or anything like that. It could just be people who, for whatever reason, maybe I don't trust banks and I'm saving, you know, for my annual inventory by I'm a florist or whatever. But if I have, you know, uh, what police consider a large amount of money and it is found, it it can be taken. And really, you know, if you don't know your rights, you're kind of stuck.
3: I think you hit on what makes civil forfeiture civil forfeiture because we have to remember there's also criminal forfeiture, which is the main way the government seizes property from the criminally involved. For example, if I go out and rob a bank and I steal a bunch of money from that bank and I drive away in a getaway car and... I'm convicted of bank robbery and I'm going to jail. They can seize the money that I stole from the bank and my getaway car through criminal forfeiture because there's a charge and a conviction. These are only the circumstances where they're seizing property they suspect to be involved without charging or convicting anyone.
0: And again, you, you point out most people really don't know what to do. I mean, look, if, if they're not a criminal, it's not like they're trying to hide it. So they'll probably naively go along with requests. Well, do you have large amounts of cash in the car or, you know, jewelry or things like that? And they may unwittingly open their mouths and, and put themselves in danger of having that taken under civil forfeiture.
3: Definitely. And there's a large portion of people for whom their property is seized and they aren't even the ones in direct possession at the time. They're called innocent third party property owners where they loan their car to their son or their boyfriend who takes it out and it's seized through civil forfeiture. And they're not even there to witness the seizure.
0: Man. Now, I know some states have actually taken steps to to dial this in. Um, tell me about, uh, you know... Are are, are there still workarounds? In other words, do do the, the federal law enforcement agencies like the DEA and others sometimes give police a workaround if their state prohibits taking of property in this fashion?
3: Yeah, so there's state civil forfeiture and there's criminal civil, I mean, there's federal civil forfeiture and they act concurrently. So while there have been a lot of state reform efforts, that doesn't affect any forfeiture that's seized under federal law by the DEA or the FBI or the ATF. This all is under federal law, um, which has experienced very little reform. There's a current bill called the FAIR Act that's before Congress right now that has the power to make some serious reform. But on the state level, it is a completely separate system. There are times when they interact with one another, but you can largely conceive of them as two separate systems working uh, concurrently.
0: And you mentioned in your article that, that some of these agencies actually stand to to pocket some of the proceeds that they confiscate from people, which to me seems like a, a very terrible incentive to be looking for large amounts of cash and so forth um, where, where really no crime exists.
3: Yeah, moving away from the civil liberties aspect and on to sort of the separation of powers and governance aspect, agencies are supposed to get their funding from the legislature right not from americans pockets and when law enforcement is padding their budget buying weapons and increasing their salaries and things of this nature with the budget that they're increasing from civil forfeiture naturally humans respond to economic incentives whether we would like to admit it or not on some level this encourages police to forfeit more property than they might otherwise
0: it's been a couple of years, but there was actually like a, an ABC 2020 news magazine program um, some years ago. And I want to say this was in either um, Tennessee or maybe South Carolina, but it was a, a fairly well-known drug corridor. But literally police agencies, state trooper versus sheriff deputies fighting over who gets to pull somebody over because they were looking for cash to confiscate. I mean, it was it was a little bit ridiculous and not just a little bit sickening.
3: So, I certainly agree.
0: So, Jill, tell me this again. Um, in in the case of of Miss Starling, she is going to have another chance thanks to the Institute of Justice Institute for Justice to to, uh, to get her money back. Um, where can we follow this? Or what's a good source to follow this case?
3: Yeah, definitely, you can look um her lawyers, the Institute for Justice website, that is a great place to find it. The Second Circuit held that she'll be held to what's called a good cause standard, which basically means procedural hiccups like this, as missing a filing deadline, so long as they're not made maliciously, won't preclude her from being able to fight for her property back.
0: All right, again, we're talking with Jill Jacobson. She's a law student at Boston College Law School and a Young Voices contributor. Where can you be found on social media?
3: Yep, I'm Jill C. Jacobson on Twitter. Thank you so much for having me, Brian.
0: Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to introduce to you Shakira Jackson. She is a Young Voices contributor. Shakira, very happy to have you on the program. Would you mind just taking a moment to tell us about who you are and what you do?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, of course, and to even discuss such a critical topic. Uh, it's just a dream come true. I'm so excited for today, but I work as a policy analyst for a nonprofit called Mental Health on Purpose. Um, I'm currently here not representing the organization, though, just kind of giving you my own personal opinions um, and what I believe. I wrote my op-ed, and I'm really excited to kind of hop right into it, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much my background. You can follow me on all social medias at at Shakira Jackson, and that's with a zero, because. Unfortunately, the original Shakira Jackson tag was taken, sadly. <laughs> Understood. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm a good conservative um, activist and great to be
0: here. This is a very timely topic. And the topic that she's referring to is how to heal the fractured conservative movement. Um, I was telling her just off the air, um, I just was reading an article about how conservatives kind of miss the ball when it comes to, uh, for instance, the culture war, because uh, they they very rarely um, celebrate the arts or, or do anything to further the arts. Um, um, and the and even when someone comes along from the conservative point of view and and puts out a you know a good film or something like that conservatives will sit there and pick it apart well it's not conservative enough talk to me about why the conservative movement is so so disunified right now and then we can talk about some solutions
4: Sure thing. So, I mean, I take the stance, you know, and when you dive into the article, you can kind of figure out that, you know, I am supportive of the Freedom Conservative, um, you know, a statement of principles. I view this document kind of as a hopeful and unifying guide meant to kind of bridge uh, divisions within the conservative movement. You know, I believe a guide is essential in our current political climate, which is marked by, you know, fragmentation within conservative ranks and, um, you know, toward non-conservative agendas, such as government expansion and um, individual. Liberties. And I kind of suggest that, you know, this document can kind of assist in reasserting the importance of fundamental conservative principles and values. And, you know, this in turn kind of offers a a path for conservatives to present a unified front and kind of articulate a vision that, uh, you know, really resonates with a broad spectrum of Americans. And I think that's kind of the only way we're going to kind of get to where we really need to be is that unification, being on the same page, um, and really just kind of honing in on our. Uh, fundamental principles as
0: a whole. So let's talk about some of those specific principles. Where Where is the common ground that, that conservatives should be rallying together rather than looking for differences?
4: Well, you know, the document, it serves kind of as like a pivotal compass, kind of like guiding uh, conservatives towards kind of a a mutual understanding of what conservatism really means in the United States today. So, you know, it not only bridges ideological divides, but kind of provides a clear unifying vision by rallying around the principles and, you know, the statement, it said uh, a conservatives can melt a unifying front against the um, contemporary challenges we face. And, you know, that's, I think, really, really essential because we're kind of witnessing a surge in agendas that are you know, largely unconservative with increasing government interference and um, a disregard for uh, really responsibility. And I think that statement kind of stands as, you know, a little bit as a beacon of hope, per se, kind of reinforcing the importance of conservative principles and values um, in, in relation to a, a prosperous America. And I mean, even after that, I think it does uh, also emphasize kind of the shared principle of values kind of being a bedrock for conservative thought. So kind of, you know, it offers, A comprehensive path for enabling conservatives to really articulate uh, a a vision of limited government, individual empowerment, and economic opportunity. And you know, it's just—it's a vision that can really resonate with Americans, like I said, across the spectrum.
0: I'm looking at uh, that statement of principles, and and I mean, I have a hard time. You know, understanding why conservatives would, would remain divided over issues like liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the foundation right. of prosperity, full faith and credit, nation of laws, not men. I mean, you would think that these are just kind of fundamental bedrock, but still we find ourselves divided. And, and I'm curious, Shakira, what, mm-hmm. what leads to most of our divisions? Why, why do we tend to, to split ourselves up and, and dwell on differences rather than commonalities?
4: You know, I think that's a really hard question to answer. And I really, is just, it's probably just a, a case by case basis as well, because, you know, although I, I identify as a conservative libertarian, so, you know, my views are kind of, you know, libertarian, but also conservative. But I find myself when I have critical thinking conversations with other, with my peers who are also conservative, you know, we disagree on certain things, but I think it's, it's important to kind of have that, like you said, the, the common ground of being able to listen to understand um, versus just kind of listening. Listening and let everything go on one or the other, because after all, we're all in the same liberty movement. You know, we, I feel like we're all we're all at some point for the same things. It's just kind of the way we get there, um, and that's only gonna that's only gonna work if we have that sit down, those conversations, and the reevaluation of what it even really means to be uh, a true and a proud American and conservative. And I think that's you know what this country was was really built on. You know, the the, the Constitution, the fundamental principles, and we really just kind of need to return to our roots and that's how i think we'll find our way
0: it seems like the left doesn't struggle with this i mean now the left is a, is a pretty diverse group to start with but for some reason they are able to come together they'll circle the wagons and and become as unified as can be you know when push comes to shove but but conservatives struggle with that
4: yeah. I 100% agree. And you know what? That's probably why we are where we are with the, the voting and the polls and, you know, who's being elected right now. I think it all, yeah. is it's just one big circle. Um, and I think the the left definitely does, a, I guess, a great role in kind looking out for one each other a little bit more. I find, you know, when things go left for, for other conservative, even th- thinking to the political world, right, where for conservative candidates and, uh, you know, Republican candidates, when things go left, we're kind of like, all right, well, I guess it's time to pack up and look <laughs> i find the left they'll they'll stick up beside you know they'll stick beside their their people you know kamala she trashed biden in the and you know their their debate going back and forth and then the guy he elects her as his you know vp so it just comes to show you know it's, it's it's they're they're they they know the game right so it's it's really i think a strategy i always like to say you know there's a method to the madness but i don't necessarily think that we should even try to mimic what the left is doing because it's more so just their power hungry i think as i mentioned you know earlier when i when i was talking about bridging the gap making sure we acknowledge um you know the vision within the vision like i said is that individual empowerment and economic opportunity so if we can return to that i think you know i, I see a bright future for our America.
0: Talk to me about uh, how you feel about the idea of, is it better to be known for what you stand for versus what you're against? And, and do, does conservatism sometimes fall into that trap of being better known for what we're against than, than what we're for?
4: Absolutely. I think the biggest example with this is, you know, the whole Roe versus Wade pro-life movement, right? Um, you know, we've been kind of having the question right now. it's so, you know, are you pro-life? How is this kind of uh, uh, how is this impacting or how is this going to impact the election? And a lot of people, when they think of conservatives and Republicans now, they just think, you know, oh, yeah, the the, the people that don't want abortions, like that's like the full front you know the cover page. That's all they think conservative people are, and I think it's a it's a probably a rebranding situation. Um, and I find myself, you know, I identify, I am pro life. Um, I, I am all for, you know, saving lives. I have actually volunteered and have talked to women who were going inside, um, you know, of these these centers trying to get an abortion. I've talked women out of, you know, these types of situations, and you know, me just being in the on the forefront and the front lines and having these conversations, I found it's more so meeting people where they are, um, making sure you're connecting with them on a more personal level. At the end of the day, it's these labels, you know, I I understand whether they're, I get it, the titles, but it's more so just having the conversation. And I think that's kind of what we're missing, being able to really relate to people on that personal level, because a lot of times people will find when you do a lot of reevaluation, it's like you, honestly, I think you are pro-life. You just kind of have those, you know, little hiccups and giggles in your, in your beliefs and your values that kind of sear you away, but in reality, when you define what, you know, being pro-life really means, then, you know, here you are, we're, we're right back in the, in the the same circle.
0: Um, Shakira, something that really struck me about your article too, is you focus more on principles than personalities. And it seems like to me, this in, in my opinion, the, the great Mm -hmm. stumbling block for so many people right now on the conservative side is we get all wrapped up in personalities and forget Mm -hmm. about the principles at stake.
4: Yes. Absolutely. For sure. And I, I, I think it just has to do with the political arena and how, you know, polarizing a lot of stuff is as well. Um, and that's why I always try to emphasize too, like return to your facts. Like there's so much misinformation out there. There's so much disinformation that exists and it's kind of hard to, to really figure out your, your true stance on things because there's just so much divide and so much just, you know, blur out there. So really just important for you to do your own research and come up with a thought Um, on your own. And even I feel like education in schools, they play such a critical role in this. And it's so sad to kind of see where our education system is going with this as well, because you should should be able to learn how to come up with your own thought when you're in a classroom, not be polarized, you know, by, by someone else's opinions.
0: Here, here. Well, I, you have done what I would have considered the impossible, Shakira, and that is you've actually given me some optimism as we're moving forward. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing that. Again, we're talking with Shakira Jackson. She is a Young Voices contributor. Shakira, where can people follow your writing and where can they follow you on social media?
3: Yes,
4: absolutely. So my Instagram, my now X, as the folks new folks like to call it, account my X, my Twitter, uh, my TikTok, Instagram. You can find me all in the same tag, and that Shakira spelled S H A K I R A, and then Jackson J A C K S zero N. And uh, I'm always posting articles around. So you know, if you type my name, you never know what you might find. So yeah, just be on the lookout. Thanks so much for all of the support, and uh, look forward to talking with you guys soon.